Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Sam Andre, and today I am taking over hosting duties as Ontario Loud's resident homosexual to bring you a Pride-themed episode. Amidst this global pandemic, you will be forgiven for potentially missing that June is Pride Month and Canada's largest Pride Parade in Toronto would have been this coming Sunday. We thought it would be a great time to do a check-in, and we are reminded this month in particular that Pride is political. It has its roots in riots and protests that were led in large by LGBTQ plus people of color fighting for the rights that uh, we enjoy today. So we thought a great time to take a look and check in on LGBTQ plus politics and policy, the good, uh, the bad, and the ugly. And while we are coming up on next month, actually, on the 15-year anniversary of same-sex marriage being legalized across uh, the country, there are still a number of pressing policy challenges facing our community. And so to help us with this discussion, we are bringing in uh, two guests. So first, Rachel Clark. Rachel is a transgendered woman and Canadian human rights act advocate. She's an expert in diversity, intersectionality, and inclusion, and is a sought-after public speaker on these topics, as well as an influencer on LGBTQ2 plus issues in the federal and Ontario provincial governments. She has appeared on CBC Radio 1 in the Vice documentary On Hold and has been profiled on CBC, CB24, Global, City TV, and CTV and was featured in Toronto Life magazine. By day, Rachel is a cybersecurity analyst with the TD Bank Group. Welcome, Rachel. Uh, Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And second, we are pleased to be joined by Kevin Huron. Kevin is a writer and advocate living in Toronto, a former speechwriter to Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne and Canada's Finance Minister Bill Morneau. He most recently served on the Prime Minister's writing team for the 2019 federal election, writing the platform chapter on inclusion and diversity, which we're going to discuss today. He's also the former chair of the Ontario Public Service Pride Network and currently writes for CBRC, a Canada-wide organization that promotes the health of queer men, as well as Extra and LGBTQ2 news and culture site. Welcome, Kevin. Really excited to be on the pod. Thanks for being here. All right, let's jump right in and we'll start with maybe some potentially positive 2020 news, as rare as that is, and that is Canada's proposed ban on conversion therapy. Uh, For those that may not know, conversion therapy is an organized effort aiming uh, to change an individual's sexual orientation to heterosexual, to repress or reduce homosexual attraction, or to change an individual's gender identity to match the sex they were assigned at birth. There is an international consensus that there is no medical validity to this practice. Uh, And the practice can take various forms, uh, counseling, prayer, role play, behavioral modification, and in its most extreme forms includes things like electric shocks and forced vomiting. Estimates are that one in five sexual minority men in Canada have been subjected to these practices and that lower income, indigenous, and trans people are disproportionately represented in those statistics. Ontario became the first province in 2015 to ban this practice on children as well as remove the ability to charge OHIP for it through a bill that uh, NDP MPP Sherry DeNovo led with unanimous support from all three parties, uh, but it didn't address adult conversion therapy. On March 9th, uh, a few months ago, right before COVID took over all of our worlds, the federal government tabled legislation that would criminalize conversion therapy through five amendments to the criminal code, making it illegal to provide conversion therapy to a minor, to send minors abroad to have it done, uh, to cause an adult to undergo conversion therapy against their will, and also uh, makes it illegal to profit from or advertise conversion therapy. Um, The bill, though, has not been debated since. Um, So, Kevin, 
Kevin, maybe I want to start with you. You played a significant role in writing this last Liberal Party platform, which included that commitment. Uh, so maybe I'll start with you, just how that came to be and your perspective on it. Yeah, I've had a really unique experience with the legislation because I've kind of been working with it on both ends of the process. So as you mentioned, I was working for the federal government and was on the 2019 platform writing team. And so very much got to sit at that table and be part of those discussions when it came to what would be included in the platform plank when it came to the LGBT community. Um, So conversion therapy was definitely something that was seen as a priority. It's been, you know, increasing in prominence in terms of what advocates were asking for. But then after the election, I, when I decided to leave my government position, um, and, but still continue advocacy work with organizations like the Community-Based Research Center in uh, British Columbia, um, that was one of our top priorities. And so since then, I've also been on calls with Justice Canada, advocating on the very same issue, but from the other side of the table, um, as a kind of external pre- um, person putting pressure on the government. And so we were very pleased to see them take a lot of our recommendations and put this legislation forward. Uh, I think it's a really important first step, but there are ways to definitely improve it and strengthen it. Okay. I want to pick up on that, but maybe Rachel, I'll hear from you. You know, what do you think about this? Do you think this kind of legislation uh, will help? I'll say yes and no. And here's my yes. I, I think it's a really great first important step because C8, the bill that's been proposed, has criminal penalties. And, and that means that if someone is subjected to any kind of conversion therapy, that there is a consequence to it. But I'll also say no on the other side, because I, I really believe that the church is going to reframe it as something else. Let's call it Bible camp. We have to understand that the practice of conversion therapy has been very covert in many ways as well as, as open, you know, as it's been in the past it's also been a covert practice. So churches right. which are very insular, they don't really make it known that they're doing this. And, and in fact, I'm willing to bet, and I, I think uh, Kevin might agree that it's still happening today, even despite all of this stuff, it's still happening. So what's really, uh, what I would like to see added to the platform is a way for people who um, are aware or know about uh, this practice continuing to happen, whether it's called uh, whatever the church is going to call it, uh, that there's a vehicle for them to make complaints and for the government to take action on it. Interesting. Kevin, maybe here could I hear from you what you think could be strengthened about it? Definitely. I think the biggest thing that a lot of advocates are asking for is to broaden uh, the definition of conversion therapy, exactly as Rachel was mentioning. Um, when people think of conversion therapy, they think of something very specific, something that's often clinical or heavily organized, when really we're talking about what people are calling SOGIs, so a broader set of sexual orientation and gender identity and expression change efforts. And these efforts can really be encompassing of anything that moves someone further away from a affirming um, path to their own identity. And so even using a personal example, you know, I had a teacher in high school who would say things like, you know, being gay is a choice. And if you make that choice, you'll be unhappier and your life will be worse. That doesn't look like what people think of as conversion therapy, um, but that's still a very impactful negative process of hearing that from an authority figure, and that would be included in that SOGI's category. So that's, I think, what a lot of people are looking to this legislation to help really fight against. It's going to always have a limit. Um, The federal government can't 
criminalize, you know, every single conversation, but it can work with other levels of government, like provinces and municipalities to write legislation, to signal to communities, anything that is once again, pushing people away from that affirming understanding of their own identity is very dangerous, very problematic and needs to be stopped. And I mean, it hasn't been debated since, but I don't know how much to take from that given COVID has, you know, taken over all the attention. But do you you think in a minority parliament, uh, this, you know, will make its way through? And do you think that the other parties are going to push for the kind of changes that advocates are, are pushing for? Well, on the note of timelines, the government has other levels that it levers at its disposal to pull um, to make progress on this front. Um, it can fund supports for uh, conversion therapy or SOGI survivors. It can fund more research efforts so we better understand where it's happening, how it's happening, what it's being called. Um, it can still make progress on this front without necessarily waiting for the legislation. Um, but I do think that when they finally do debate it, They'll obviously be supported by the NDP. I know people like Aaron O'Toole have kind of suggested that he might be voting against it, but then have kind of, you know, gone against that in his social media. So we'll see what, how the Conservative Party uh, responds. But I think the legislation is one tool, but only one tool. There's other ways that the government can tackle this issue. Awesome. Okay. So moving on to item number two on the Liberal Party commitments. In 2015, the Liberals promised to end the ban against blood donations from men who have sex with men. Just as a bit of history and context, before the introduction of blood testing for HIV, at least 2,000 Canadians contracted AIDS through blood transfusions. And in 1977, a lifetime ban on blood donations from men who have sex with men was put in place. Uh, currently in Canada, 52% of the people with HIV are men who have sex with men, with 32% originating from heterosexual sex and 16% from injection drugs. Uh, HIV testing, though, has improved dramatically and is now uh, virtually 100% accurate within about 50 days, according to the last things that I have read. And in fact, there hasn't been a case of HIV infection from blood transfusion in more than 25 years. As a result, the lifetime ban was lifted in 2013 when Canada moved to a policy that allowed donations from men who said they'd had abstained from sex with other men for at least five years. In 2016, that period was reduced to one year. And then just last year in 2019, it was down to three months. As an aside, given many people's COVID self-isolation, I know I've seen some comments from several gay friends online that they're now donating for the first time, so maybe small silver lining. Uh, but in uh, the 2019 campaign, the Liberals repledged to end that three-month period and end the ban entirely, move to a behavior-based model that would not differentiate bisexuality, but by high-risk behaviors like number of sexual partners or the use of condoms. Um, this model has been adopted in places like Italy and Spain, and in the Italian study of that change found that the proportion of HIV-positive blood donations from men who have sex with men did not increase, though it is still worth noting that the overall rate of HIV-positive blood donations is higher in those countries. Um, so friends, what do we make of all this? Do we think that the liberals are going to be able to end the ban and get Health Canada there? And do we think it's important that they do so? So I, I mean, I think it's paramount that they, they, they do it. It's um, what the liberals have promised that they would do. But on top of that, you know, if we really distill the issue of the blood ban down to um, its very lowest common denominator, what's being asked of people is behavior-based screening. So first of all, it makes the assumption that when you're going into the blood donation center to give blood that you're going to say, 
yes, I haven't had sex in five months or whatever the number is. I, but I, you know, it's been four months and 29 days. It's such an arbitrary, silly number that I don't understand that. Second of all, it makes the assumption that gay men and trans women specifically are the only people that have HIV. So, you know, they're taking millions of blood donations. Basically, to me, what they're saying is that there are no heterosexual people who can contract and have HIV. And when we look at the numbers, that just doesn't flesh out. So it's really policy that's based in a lot of politics. It's a number that's based in a lot of discrimination or a policy that's based in a lot of discrimination. And, and I really, really believe that it's time for it to end. We've come a long way medically. We can test all of the blood. It's not a problem anymore. And this shouldn't even be an issue. And the fact that it is, is uh, frustrating for a lot of people in our community. And, you know, I'll add to that by saying, Initially, the deferral period, so the amount of time that you had to remain celibate in order to donate, was based on the window period, so the amount of time between transmission and a positive test result. And as Rachel mentioned, technology has moved to, along to the point that that window period is now reduced to nine days. So it would be, you know, I think a simple step to say, okay, now if you've been celibate for nine days, now you can donate. But that's not what the community is asking for. We want a behavior-based, gender-neutral approach. We want one that isn't discriminatory because any blanket ban assumes that every sexual encounter between two men is a possible incident of HIV transmission. And that is just not the reality in Canada. That ignores what we know about sexual practices, like the fact that there is practically zero risk of transmission in oral sex. We know that ignores things like advancement and prevention for HIV with things like PrEP. It ignores the uptake of treatment for people living with HIV. And it especially ignores the risks of heterosexual sex. So exactly, Rachel mentioned, um, a third of Canadians living with HIV received the virus via heterosexual sex. So I think our community is rightfully saying, you're ignoring all these things that are scientifically proven are on the table. It's time to readjust the policies and come to us with a better, less discriminatory strategy and plan. Very compelling. Rachel, do you have anything you want to add there? Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely agree. And I, I think that, you know, it's in other countries, this is not really an issue, as you rightfully pointed out. So the question is, why are we behind? And we have to really, you know, look at that and understand why we're not there yet. There's no other logical conclusion to make other than discrimination. I even have a problem with these behavioral-based questions because, you know, it predicates that people are on the honor system, that they're going to go in and, in and tell, the, tell the truth about, you know, their sexual partners. And, you know, I think that it's something that we shouldn't be asking, asking people. Like if you're in a committed heterosexual relation or heterosexual relationship, if you're in a committed homosexual relationship, if you're in a committed relationship with somebody, or even if you're not, it's not a really appropriate question to be asking if you're just donating blood. And, you know, as Kevin rightfully pointed out, it's, it's a nine day period between contact and transmission or transmission. Right. So, so I really would like them to, you know, step on the accelerator with this. It's time. And I would agree with them, you know, doing it right away. Yeah. And to, you know, go back to your original question, Sam, like the government's likelihood to do this. They have been taking steps. And, you know, in 2015, they funded 15 research projects um, related to this issue. Uh, so they do, I, I know they do care. It was in their earlier platform. It's in their platform again now. Um 
But the thing with the medical and scientific community is sometimes it's very slow. But I think what COVID has illustrated is like, oh, things can actually move very quickly if there's will. Like this whole notion that it takes years and years and years to mobilize a medical community to, to present a new policy or a new public statement or an education campaign has really been blown out of the water. Um, we've seen that when there's enough will, things can happen faster. And we're just asking that that happen with the blood deferral ban and policy. All right. Very good. Okay. Moving on to topic number three. So uh, rights for trans people are always an important part of pride and uh, maybe have received even greater attention in the last uh, little bit with J.K. Rowling's recent very disturbing transphobic missives uh, that has brought it into the public discourse uh, even more. You know, trans people face particularly unique challenges, and I think it's probably worth highlighting just a few. So 74% of trans students in Canada report verbal harassment, 37% physical harassment. Trans individuals in Ontario have unemployment rates three times higher than the average, and 77% of trans people in Ontario report having considered suicide, and 43% have attempted suicide at least once. Sobering statistics. Uh, maybe on the more positive side, there has been considerable positive change in the last few years. So Bill C-16 passed in 2017, adding gender identity and expression to the Canadian Human Rights Act and Criminal Code as prohibited grounds for discrimination, hate speech, and hate crimes, building on changes made uh, to the Ontario Human Rights Code in 2012, uh, changes to allow for non-binary gender identification on Ontario health cards, driver's license and birth certificates were all introduced in 2017 and on Canadian Canadian passports last year, and uh, changes were made in 2018 to accommodate prisoners based on gender identity rather than sex, and the Canadian Armed Forces issued revised policies last year expressly allowing soldiers to freely express their gender identity. Um, so, you know, a quick rundown, but Rachel, I think I want to start with you. What more needs to be done for trans people in Ontario? What challenges remain for full trans inclusion? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, there's actually quite a bit of work that still has to be done. Um, when we look at trans people in Ontario, um, there's kind of three barriers to uh, living in an equal world, and that's access to housing, uh, access to health care and employment. So let me give you an example of that. I live in York Region, um, you know, I'm pretty far away from my doctor who's in downtown Toronto who specializes in trans health care. And um, somebody said to me, well, why don't you get a doctor here in York region? And I said, well, I'm not necessarily sure that um, they would have an adequate amount of training to understand my health care needs. Um, and so it requires me to travel great distances. And this is true for a lot of trans people, especially in rural areas. So I think focus one needs to be um, looking at how we can support trans people in rural areas um, as much as we do as in the city areas. Um, the second part is there's a lot of housing discrimination for trans people. And I, I think that has to be addressed, especially with how the housing supports with the Ontario provincial government. Um, that's something that they can look at. And employment, although I, I have to say employment is getting a lot better than it than it used to be. I still, though, hear a lot of stories of trans people who are being fired from their job when they come out in the workplace. So, you know, they come in and they tell their employer that they're trans and they get fired. Um, and and you know, that's happening in, in the same frequency. So uh, really, that's something that we have to address is how we're going to protect those people who um, are coming out in the workplace. 
Um, also, uh, we have to look at sex work. Um, you know, there was um, there was a big push to legalize uh, sex work a few years ago, and I think that needs to be taken up again. It's a uh, danger. It's dangerous at times, and trans people are vulnerable. Uh, the reason we know trans people are vulnerable is because in the United States, there's still um, an ever-increasing amount of murders of trans people of color. Uh, so um, it's it's definitely an issue, and we're not immune from it in Canada here, by the way. Um, I, you know, I'm sure you've all heard in the, in the news in December, my very good friend Julie was murdered, um, yeah. you know, and um, a trans person and was... Um, we still don't know his motivation for um, for killing her, but um, you know that we, you know, our first the first thought in our mind is, of course, you know, she was murdered because she was trans. Even if she wasn't, she was put in a vulnerable situation with somebody who murdered her. So, you know, we have to we have to find ways to protect our trans people um, in Ontario. I think it's really really important, and you know, the C sixteen was really great. Um, gave a lot of, um, it gave a really good platform for trans people to jump off of, but we still have um, a lot of water to put in the pool. That's a really good rundown. Um, and Kevin, I want to get to you, but maybe just one um, follow up on what you said. So, in terms of housing and employment discrimination, to your point, they're, you know, illegal, I guess, now under um, the law. Um, but what are, how are people practically dealing with that? Do you know when people take it to the human rights tribunals, are they, you know, succeeding? Like what are, how is it kind of manifesting on the ground? If that makes sense. Yeah. And that's a great question. And, and you know, I, I don't think that this is a issue that's strictly applied to trans people. I know that there's a lot of people of color who face this as well. Um, you can you can go on Kijiji as an example or Craigslist and you can look at listings for houses and, you know, it will say, I only want this type of person, you know, um, and that's discriminatory. And the problem is, is that there's not a really great vehicle. You could take it to the human rights tri- tribunal, but it may take years to get it looked at. And by that time, your, your housing situation has changed and you're saying, well, maybe I shouldn't pursue it. Um, I, I think we just have to be more stringent about, you know, the rules around housing and, you know, who... Um, and how we rent places from people. And so they're not discriminated against. It's, it's a very hard thing to prove, I think, you know. Right, yeah. Kevin, do you, do you have perspectives here? Yeah, I think um, it's great. And we all acknowledge that the visibility of trans people has improved a lot. But what's troubling is that our, our institutions has, haven't made that shift. So in my writing, especially about healthcare, one of the most troubling stats that kind of jumped out at me was the 2016 survey of Canadian medical students, and less than 10% of them reported feeling prepared to care for a trans patient. And that's 2016, and young students, you know, the next generation we think is um, super aware of uh, diverse issues, less than 10% of them felt prepared to take on a trans um, patient and trans client. So that's not even accounting for all the practitioners currently out there. And that kind of uh, lack of cultural competency means that and explains why trans people often report really negative experiences, accessing health care, emergency care, 
experiences of misgendering um, and why they don't go back, why they don't report health issues, even if it's unrelated to their gender, um, why they don't report just regular emergency care. Um, and that's, you know, changing institutions and, and making people more familiar with these issues and more comfortable working with these communities can, I think, go a long way in terms of reaching out to them and building some of those bridges. Yeah, when I was um, had my first doctor and I, you know, came to her and said I, I'm a trans person, she literally said to me, "I have no idea what to do with you," and <laughs> you know, I, so so really, what it did is it forced me to start knocking on doors to places like I would go to Rainbow Health Ontario and I said, "I need a doctor," you know, this is a desperate situation, and they would say, "Yep, uh, love to have you, but there's a waiting list," you know. I go to 410 Sherborne and say, I, I need a doctor. And they say, oh, well, we'd love to give you one, but a waiting list. So it was really difficult to get anybody who was competent enough in trans healthcare. And it's really, you know, spending 15 minutes on it in medical school isn't good enough. We need to have a network where people can go and know that doctors have been adequately trained in healthcare. Uh, Sherborne Health Center gives this training for free to doctors. I think more and more are taking it up, which is really great. Um, so uh, once they get through the training, I, I'm sure it's uh, it's better that they're adequately able to address trans people's needs. But it's a scary thing to go to the doctor when you're a trans person. And I, Kevin, such a great point. It's also very scary. Um, I I know I fear this of you know being hurt and having to go to the hospital, you know, as a trans person because you know um, they make judgments based on either what your ID says or what's between your legs. And, um, you know, that puts trans people at a lot of risk because they they aren't treated well when that happens. And so I know a lot of work has been done with St. Mike's and um, a number of other health networks. Uh, Women's College Hospital has been wonderful for trans people and, uh, you know, kind of working on how do we um, serve the trans community, you know. All right. Uh, thank you for that. And maybe just transition now to our last topic, and that is the role of police and police forces at Pride. So there won't be a Pride Parade this year, so we're maybe um, kind of spared from some of this. But listeners may recall that in 2016, uh, Black Lives Matter held a sit-in at the Toronto Pride Parade for about 30 minutes, uh, asking for a ban on police forces marching in uniform or carrying guns. Uh, which were agreed to and then later endorsed by Pride's membership. Uh, This continues to be a somewhat hot issue among that membership who voted 163 to 161, so a razor-thin margin, uh, just last January to keep a uniformed police out of the parade. Um, Premier Ford cites this policy for his decision not to march in the parade, though maybe worth noting he did march in York Region's parade last year. So I thought with all of the events of the past month, um, you know, surrounding anti-Black racism and and Black Lives Matter, that I wanted to hear from you on this. Uh, Do you think that the politics sort of within the community will have shifted um, given some of these events? um, And what, if anything, do you think comes next on this issue? And I know, Rachel, you were on the board of Pride uh, during this. So maybe uh, I'll start with you from, on your perspective. Yeah, I was a secretary of the board when uh, the two, 2016 parade happened. I really think that important conversations were being missed by Pride for a long, long time. You know, we 
um, not we, the community as a whole, wasn't having real substantive uh, conversations about, you know, the different experiences of people in our community. I mean, the trans march as an example only started in 2009 and only because trans people took over the street and made it happen. So we didn't really have a lot of good conversations about this. And increasingly, I don't know what your experience was, but for me, I can remember sitting um, at the side of the parade one year and seeing just this vehicle that that looked like a military vehicle. And I I was really frustrated by that because I didn't think in a in a place where we have refugees and people of color and people who have um, experienced trauma to to have a place where they're supposed to go and feel safe, to have guns and military vehicles and grayed out cop cars and, you know, all of this stuff. So I really wish that before 2016, we started to have a lot more fulsome conversation about how we can make Pride a place for everyone. So I wasn't opposed to um, the what BLM did during the parade. I think it helped to ignite an important discussion. And it was a very uh, stressful time for a lot of people. But what's more stressful is that um, Black people, uh, especially people of color, are still getting killed in this country. Um, And we just, you know, we've seen, what, three incidences in the past two weeks. So I think it's really important that we uh, start to uh, center our conversations about how we make pride a safe place for everybody. I, Rachel Clark, am not opposed to police officers um, who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender marching in the parade. I, I just, I don't know if they need to be there in uniform with guns strapped to their hip. You know, that's just my own personal opinion. I don't see the purpose uh, of it. I, you know, the, the argument is, well, you work for TD you wear your TD t-shirt and I'm like, but I'm not carrying a gun, <laughs> you know? Um, so, I, so, you know, it's a, like wear a police t-shirt that, but you know, it's just, it's not necessary. I do know a lot of wonderful police officers who are gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender who um, are working really hard to try to root out some of this stuff in the police department. And that needs to be said as well. But I I really think it's important that we start having a lot more fulsome conversation on what a safe pride looks like. What I kind of compare it to, and following me here for a bit, is, you know, all three of us have worked in politics or worked with politics. And so when people would come to me and say, you know, politics doesn't work, uh, the system's broken, I like everyone in politics is corrupt. Um, I never take that as a personal affront, even though, you know, I've worked in with liberal governments, you know, for over five years, I try to never take that as a personal affront and more so an opportunity to have a conversation of, you're right, the system in ways that we vote and assign power and then, you know, decide things after that does favor some voices over others. How can we change the system to improve it? It's not going to happen overnight. But how can I kind of remove that personal layer to recognize that the system as a whole does not work for everyone? I think that same dynamic needs to and is happening with both Pride Toronto and also policing in general. Like Rachel said, there are a lot of great people involved in both, uh, but it's time to take a step back, remove the personal layer and acknowledge that not everyone is being served the way that 
they should be, um, than they deserve to be, and that these systems were designed to do. Yeah. And and we're um we're white people, right? Uh, you know, um we you know I I one of the things that I've been doing since well since forever though is um trying to see um how I can you know make space for people of color to have their voices used, and um I I really really think it's important for a lot of the things we do is that we center conversations around people of color. Um, you know, racism exists in this country. We see it every single day. Just open the comment section of any Twitter post that's uh, has to do with race relations or, you know, look, look in the newspaper. You'll see it every single day. We really need to center the conversations around with people of color to lead lead these conversations and we follow them. And so I hope that, I hope we get to that point where, um, you know, we can start being a supporting actor rather than, rather than the voice going forward. And I think it's important to note too, that, you know, every stat that we've thrown out and every issue we've talked about, um, especially in the realm of housing, healthcare, income, um, these are disproportionately impacting queer people um, and trans people. But when you add the layer of race on top of it, it's, it gets even more impactful and those people are even more marginalized. Um, so while we've kept things at a high level conversation, it's important, I think, to recognize too that that's why these conversations between race and you know gender identity and sexual orientation are so tied together, because the more layers you're on top of that, the more intersectional these issues become, the more you know, disenfranchised you see, um, and the, the worst the, the stats uh, kind of prevent. Yeah, one of the one of the most frustrating things to me ever, by the way, is Rio de Janeiro in Brazil has the largest pride anywhere in the world. And you know what? They also lead the world, and they also lead the world in the number of trans people murdered per year. Over 250 people every single year, like clockwork. And there's never that conversation in Brazil, a million people going to pride there, never centering the trans people who are being murdered there and demanding more from their government. It's it's more of a, you know, a get together, a celebration of pride and not centering those voices. And, uh, you know, we have to start doing that. We we really do. Yeah. And I, and I do think that the pride membership just given the last conversation was not yet there and it was you know a lot of a lot of white people um with their own perspectives and so i think hopefully the events of the last month will have changed that um i wanted i I just wanted to say to doug ford when he marched in in pride in york i live in york he just showed up. He didn't tell anybody he was coming. And and so that was a complete political move on his part and a and a slap in the face to Pride Toronto. And I think that, you know, I, I think I wish I would he would have been called out more about that, about avoiding the issue of anti-black racism. You know, it, it seemed to me that he did that, you know, to make some kind of populist political statement about police. But what, to me, what it really said was, I don't want to talk about anti-Black racism. And so, you know, I think me as well as a number of people who live here in this community were very frustrated by that, you know, just showing up and doing that. Right. Yeah, totally. Uh, any parting thoughts from either of you? I think, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of uh, 
real challenges facing the community. But maybe to end on a more uplifting note, um, it is pride. And I do think that this community is incredibly resilient and incredibly persistent. We especially seen during COVID, a lot of our spaces have been sh- closed down, you know, bars, bookshops, um, places that we find community. And so I've been really amazed at and impressed by our community's ability to mobilize online, reach out to each other, support each other, um, continue ad- important advocacy work, yes, about around the blood ban and around SOGI and around healthcare, but also around things like mental health, substance use issues, so many other housing, so many other things that we didn't get a chance to talk about today. So uh, I'll just end by saying that I love being a member of this community. Um, and I think that a lot of this really important work is going to continue even as we remain kind of physically apart. Yeah, I think that's great. And I, and I do think to the, the lack of partying and the inability to sort of get together for the, you know, the more raucous side of pride has made the conversations within the community much richer and more focused on um, the work still to be done. And I think that maybe is a silver lining. Uh, Rachel, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I just want to bring attention to the fact that um, we still have a crisis in our community with trans people of color and uh, all around the world, this is an issue, but especially in the United States, um, South America and Brazil and Central America. And um, I would like our government to take a more active role in international relations and uh, for the LGBT community, um, you know, we know that there's uh, seven countries at least that, uh, you know, have a death penalty for homosexuality, um, are locking people up and imprisoning them. And um, there's a really dire situation in a lot of refugee camps with LGBT people. So I really hope that in the next few years, working with organizations like Rainbow Railroad, we can start to have a lot more fulsome conversations about what our place on the international stage is going to be in terms of LGBT community. I love that. Thank you for closing with that. Okay, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you both uh, so much for bringing a lot of uh, richness and thoughtfulness to this discussion. Uh, Next week, we are pleased to be bringing you our discussion with MPP Laura May Lindo, the MVP critic for anti-racism, citizenship, and immigration. Uh, Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. If you have thoughts on anything you heard today, you can get to us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. Com. Uh, Ontario Loud is Grima, Tawa Kapoor, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Chris Martin, and me, Sam Andre. We are supported by our amazing volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundi. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud. Thanks for listening and happy Pride, everybody. Happy Pride. Happy Pride.